Hello and welcome to Global Digital Futures podcast brought to you by the SOAS Coding Club. I'm your host, Chipoma Pondera, and you're listening to SOAS Radio. This week, we are joined by Amin Hrulidi to speak about online influences and irregular migration in North Africa. Amin is a researcher at King's College London, currently focusing on European security. A career political risk consultant, Amin advises leading multinational corporations on reputational and security risks, particularly linked to their operations in Africa and the Middle East. He was previously part of PwC's strategic threat management team based in Washington, D.C., where he assisted Fortune 500 companies in assessing business risks across various industries and jurisdictions. He has served as a senior advisor to leading international NGOs, working to prevent and counter violent extremism in North Africa and the Middle East. Amin is a Fulbright scholar and has master's degrees in geopolitics and conflict analysis from King's College London and the American University in Washington, D.C., respectively. Hi, Amin. Thank you for joining us. Hi, Chipo. Thanks for having me. So I came across your research on social media and irregular migration through your Wired article. And I wanted to ask if you could start by describing this phenomenon of YouTube influencers who are invariably providing information on how people can cross from North Africa to Europe and other places. This is a phenomenon I personally stumbled upon almost by accident as a consumer of content online. Like any average user, I log on to various social media accounts and connect with friends, but also I'm a big consumer of content on YouTube. And about less than two years ago, I uh, stumbled upon a video by a young uh, Moroccan vlogger who was documenting his journey from Brazil to North America by land. And it was quite entertaining and striking because it was very full of details and almost filmed in a way that mimicked travel journalism or travel blogging. And the next video that was recommended to me was by someone who was doing pretty much the same thing, but in Europe. And somehow through YouTube magic, I ended up being exposed to a whole body of content on YouTube that was created by young migrants making their journeys across various countries trying to find a better living. And so I started asking the questions of whether this is a larger phenomenon, what actually this represented and who are these people and what have you, and led to um, my research, which ultimately led to the Wired article. And could you give us maybe some data on the number of people that are attempting to migrate and which countries this phenomenon is focused on? Sure. In this case, where we're talking mostly about young males between the ages of of 18 and I would say 25, 28, who uh, leave their countries, namely Morocco, Algeria, Tunisia, for a variety of reasons. I mean, we can include Libya in that group, but each country has its own ecosystem. And migration experience is a very personal one. I'm sure there are larger trends. I'm sure that if we look at the Libya, for instance, the political situation and the protracted conflict in the country has led people to seek safer harbors and seek better opportunities. But in countries like Tunisia, Morocco, and Algeria, it is mostly an economic decision that drives 
force people to leave their countries seeking better opportunities. There are folks who leave their countries using legal means, such as working permits in European countries, but there are those who don't have the privileges to seek the legal means to migrate to Europe and what have you, and so attempts to cross using a variety of irregular means, and in many cases it leads to tragedies, such as the ones that we've observed in the Mediterranean. It's quite interesting, the age range, you know, that these are young people. I wonder how that correlates to how they're receiving and viewing this content, you know, on the internet, on social media, perhaps on mobile phones. Can you give us more background on that? Yeah, that's actually a good question. I'll step one step back to give my personal understanding of a much larger phenomenon. There is a fundamental shift in the way young people in North Africa, and I'm pretty sure it's beyond, in how they consume information. It is no longer that linear format by which there were a couple of TV channels and radio channels that communicate information to the receiver and they actually receive the information without opportunistic engagement. The proliferation of social media in these countries as well as proliferation of cheaper smartphones, not your average $1,000 iPhones. Chinese brands or Indian brands that are widely available in these markets have allowed young people to actually be able to consume information instantaneously, but also interact with that information and create their own information. So it's a much larger phenomenon that has created the context and the infrastructure for this phenomenon by which young migrants, as they're trying to make the journey across various landscapes, have documented and shared and interacted with content online on these specific journeys. I'm quite interested also in the perception that young people have about European or other countries where they would like to migrate to and... How is this content shaping that perception? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so when I started this research, I, uh, I started with the assumption that the content or the vloggers or uh, let's say the influencers, because these become, these individuals become influencers within their respective communities. Many of them create trending videos on YouTube and attract thousands, if not millions of views. And so there are influencers in their own rights. When I started this research, I started with the assumption that the portrayal of their experiences in Europe would be one that is rosy and romanticized about Europe. But that's not what I found. In fact, because of the raw nature of these videos, the representation of their daily lives is actually much more nuanced. People talk about the difficulties of migrating, difficulties of living in Europe, their encounters with the administrations, with law enforcement, the difficulty of finding a job, the difficulty of keeping a job, heartbreaks, and what have you. It is not one where Europe is portrayed as the El Dorado. Rather, it is one representation that I think is quite balanced and nuanced that truly captures the nuanced experience with these individuals. And I would say it is the same thing for the same type of migrants and bloggers that I've actually observed in other parts of the world, because there needs to be a level of authenticity in the way how they represent their experiences. 
And I think being authentic online is part of the reasons why they're actually very successful in attracting viewerships and clicks. That's really interesting. And it makes me realize that, as you say, this is nuanced and there isn't any sort of blanket generalization that can be made about this content. But some concerns might be raised that this sort of influencer culture could somehow glamorize or perhaps minimize the risks of irregular migration. Could you maybe drill deeper into like what type of information Um, is being shared and just that perception? Of course. I mean, there are people that are glamorizing their experiences and their their, their lives in, in Europe or the United States, whatever country they migrated to. That content exists, but at least the majority of the videos, I mean, the subject of my research have had a much more a nuanced uh, representation of that experience. In fact, I will talk about two specific cases. There's a young Moroccan who is currently trying to make his journey across Europe. And he is documenting his journey with extreme details. In fact, he streamed live from underneath a truck, a lorry that he took to cross a border between a Greece and another country, which I can't remember. It was live stream. You could see the wheels of the trucks. You could see the road underneath him. You could see his dirty clothes. This is not glamorizing, you know, the migration experience. Rather, it is one that demonstrates a very dangerous journey. And many of these young bloggers in sharing the content, obviously, many of them recognize that they are actually contributing to mainstreaming the knowledge because they share very granular, operational, actionable information about how to make the journey from point A to point B. But as well, they do share the dangers that come with the journey, the arrests. Some of them actually live streams from inside jail cells when they were arrested. Some of them have demonstrated or showed the experiences of them living literally in abandoned houses in various countries across Europe. This is not a portrayal that is glamorizing the migration experience. It is one that shows the rawness of that experience, including the dangers that come with those experiences. It's really interesting, the perspective of the content creators, but what about the audiences? In your research, have you discovered perhaps through the comments or the responses to the content from the audiences, is there a way Mm -hmm. to sort of gauge how it's being received or, yeah, just how it's being perceived in general? Yeah, obviously it depends on the content creator. Each one of them have a wide variety of audiences. The majority of their viewerships are average individuals living back home in Morocco, Algeria, and Tunisia. And that's actually really what is interesting about this phenomenon because there are influencers in their own rights. They create content. And then say they upload a video on YouTube, it generates a number of comments. Then the content creator himself sometimes answers operational questions. Within that same space, some other commenters would actually correct other commenters about some misperceived or false operational information about crossing points in specific countries, or sometimes come in and share the phone number of a smuggler or the phone number of a fellow migrant who is currently making the same journey so that they can link up and connect 
And so it becomes really a community within that comment section. And fellow migrants who are also documenting those journeys, sometimes in the comment sections would go and share links, attract followers. The content creators sometimes promote fellow migrants in their videos because they provide similar experiences or better information on a specific country. So really there is the elements of a community that is active, engaged and entertained. Because most importantly, above all, this is extremely entertaining content. And that's really what's interesting, is that it is not boring content. And as we know in today's media landscape, it's really also about how you capture those audiences. And these videos create that type of engagement, which ends up attracting large audiences. Obviously, not everyone that watches these videos are migrants or interested in migration. Because these individuals become influencers, people who have no interest in migration tune in, watch, and all of a sudden get exposed to deeply operational information about migration, uh, or what I call they increase their migration IQ by virtue of actually connecting and by virtue of engaging that content. And so average people who had no understanding of the migration journey tune in to watch this extremely entertaining content online and by default become knowledgeable, more smarter about how to migrate. What do they do with that information? I don't know. Yeah, it's really interesting when you are questioning what do they actually do with that information. In July 2020, for example, more Tunisian youths were intercepted attempting to migrate than in all of 2019. And I'm sure it's difficult to sort of pinpoint and it's not fixed. But do you think that this type of content is significantly promoting or adding to these rising numbers? Or is it just part of the mix of a lot of other things? I mean, attribution is a very serious issue when doing this type of research. It's very hard to say that because of this type of content that actually there are more people trying or seeking the migration journey. But we know from interviews that many migrants actually consume that type of content online. And so whether or not there is a direct correlation between these videos and the increased number of migrants at this stage is really hard to say. However, there are many videos online by young Tunisians because they speak a dialect that's similar to the Algerian and Moroccan one can actually learn from their fellow Algerians sharing the content online and their fellow Moroccans sharing their content online. So there is a community that transcends the political borders of North Africa because of this common dialect that is being used. So actually, it's interestingly, if you watch some of these videos, the content creators recognize the diversity of their audiences. In many cases, they would give a shout out to their Algerian or Tunisian followers or their Moroccan followers if they were Algerians, which is really interesting and speaks to this widespread nature of this phenomenon beyond the North African political borders. That's so interesting uh, what you mentioned about transcending the borders and also about language and dialect. That's what contributes to making this a more regional phenomenon. So I also wanted to ask about the platforms the influencers are using. Can you just talk about how they use platforms like YouTube, use platforms like Facebook and maybe cross pollinate their content? I love these questions and I could go on and on on these questions for hours. I've tried to be as uh, concise as, as humanly possible. The way I think about these content creators and they're effectively community managers. Interestingly, many of these content creators start as vloggers on YouTube because it's a great platform for exposure, but it's an experience that you can monetize. 
the YouTube economic model is pretty straightforward. You grow audiences, you get paid through AdSense. And so there is an immediate monetary incentive for creating content on YouTube. You can grow your followers of any community on YouTube and you use the comment section to interact with your followers. In many cases, these vloggers would live stream on YouTube and actually answer live questions from audiences that a lot of the times touch deeply operational questions. So imagine a young Algerian migrant currently in Bosnia trying to make it through into Croatia. They would live stream from Bosnia and a, a young Algerian would go in and ask them a question about specific crossing points in Bosnia. That question gets answered immediately. And all of a sudden, let's say there are 200 people that are watching the live video. 199 people watching that video become exposed to that very granular information about something specific to Bosnia crossing points. They might not have gone to watch that video to know about that specific information, but all of a sudden they know about it. So that's how they become much more familiarized with the migration experience. So many of these bloggers are on YouTube, but they understand that they need to grow their followers and their community. And so they create accounts on Facebook and on Instagram. Uh, Twitter is not a platform that I've observed that has that kind of engagement. And so Facebook was an important platform where these young bloggers share the content. But I think there is much more interest currently in Instagram because Instagram is much more direct, much more simple to use. It's visual. You can live stream and a lot of these bloggers live stream on Instagram and interact with their audiences on Instagram and answer questions on Instagram. And Instagram, unlike YouTube, allows for direct messages for private conversations. Sometimes sensitive questions cannot be addressed in open format or open space, such as a comment section. And having a closed space, such as the message or the DM, the direct messages space, allows for a much more direct, intimate exchange between the bloggers and the audience. And uh, I myself have engaged with many of them using the DM option, and I've received many answers using the DM. And so the way I see them, they are smart users of social media, and they are effectively their own community managers who use a variety of platforms you know, in ways that is synergetic to grow their audiences and get more engagement which ultimately turns into income for the more successful ones. Yeah, I actually found it really interesting when I was looking at one influencer's accounts, Zizu, and seeing the Instagram hashtags, hashtag model, hashtag travel, you know, hashtag adventure, sort of things that are current, trendy, topical on the platform. That sort of awareness of that contemporary culture that exists on there is really interesting. But aren't there some data dangers involved for the influencers with publicizing their identities, publicizing their immigration histories? There are dangers. It's, it's, actually, it's a very important question because there is, for us as researchers, we have more responsibility to expose and jeopardize individuals that are some of the most vulnerable amongst us, which are irregular migrants, especially those who are currently in Europe in a very unfriendly environment with levels of enforcement that are unprecedented, including countries such as Greece and Croatia. So we are mindful of the moral and ethical responsibility of not exposing them. In my writing, I 
never identified fully the identities of those vloggers. And despite the explicit agreement that, yes, you go ahead and you can share, you can actually identify by name, I feel responsible on their behalf and not actually identifying by name explicitly. In the case of someone like Zizou, I spoke to him about this specific issue, actually, and how he feels about it. And he's literally said, you know, after the first article that was published on me, I, I think the floodgates have been opened. And at this point, I am a public figure and I'm okay with having major platforms speak about me. In fact, he was the subject of a BBC World News I think it was a four-minute segment just two days ago. He has conducted several interviews, including with Spanish outlets, with German outlets, and he's currently working on other interviews with the U.S. outlets. That actually objectively creates unnecessary risks for him, but he is already a public figure. He has created multiple videos online. And, um, you know, there is an assumption that maybe law enforcement in countries of interest have already paid attention to him. However, this is not actually certain because, for number one, this content is in a dialect that is not conducive to automatic monitoring. Law enforcement, in many cases, use software to scan through social media for what they call risk words. That say, for instance, in the case of security, it would be something about terrorism, you know, bomb, etc. And that gets flagged automatically to law enforcement. And you have a team of analysts that go through that content for things that they need to be flagged and need to be investigated further. In this case, it's irregular migrants who are not killing people. All they do is trying to really make the journey. So it is not something that many law enforcement organizations are paying attention to. But also the technology does not exist to that allows for monitoring of content created in dialects that do not attract enough interest from the commercial sector to create technologies to monitor it. So there's no economic incentive, there's no political incentive, and quite frankly, it would be a waste of resources for law enforcement to actually try to monitor for this content online in order to crack down more on these individuals. And um, there is for researchers like ourselves and for humanitarian organizations, there's a wealth of information out there that is worthy of being studied that it would be a pity if law enforcement cracked down on. That's my take on this. I might be a bit more liberal about this, but I think there is value in allowing for that content to exist online because it captures in a very uncensored way the genuine hardship that comes with migrating irregularly across borders. I'm really glad that you touched on how this issue is being viewed, let's say, by immigration uh, officials in some countries, because my next question was actually about how different organisations might perceive and deal with this phenomenon, particularly, let's say, the North African governments that the migrants are coming from and maybe other immigration agencies. I'm not sure if human Mm -hmm. rights agencies would find this research interesting. But yeah, might you just touch on how different organizations might perceive it and how they're dealing with it? Of course. So it is tricky. When we deal with the cyberspace, jurisdiction becomes problematic. If a Tunisian is broadcasting from Bosnia, is it the responsibility of the Tunisian government to do something about it? Or is it the responsibility of the Bosnian government to do something about it? 
if he is always on the move, who has the jurisdiction and the legal responsibility to do something about this content? And should they even do something about this? You know, so th- these questions raise not only legal questions, but also political, operational and moral questions. It hasn't been addressed at this stage. The content is so granular and detailed that it allows for humanitarian organizations to actually be able to experience the migration journey through the eyes of the migrants. You know, and the migrants, when they are walking, going through various European countries and what have you, they usually capture their experience with law enforcement with the average citizens in these countries, with humanitarian organizations, etc. And it's very interesting to listen in and see what are the concerns, what are the issues of the time, because things change. Uh, the level, for instance, of enforcement in Greece currently is much higher than, say, 10 years ago. And so videos that are uploaded today on the Greek experience are so important for human rights organizations and humanitarian organizations to hold the Greek government accountable for any alleged mistreatment of migrants as they're going through Greece. I've seen many videos where irregular migrants complain about the harsh treatment of Greek authorities against them. And many of these content is actually sometimes captured on video. Currently, there is a stress on the mistreatment of irregular migrants in Croatia. And this allows for humanitarian organizations, human rights organizations, to actually engage with Croatian authorities or Greek authorities on these allegations that are made by these irregular migrants and allow us, the wider audience, to actually be exposed to that content. There is value in that content. Maybe the Greek authorities would not like that content to be online because it's uncensored. It doesn't paint them in the best, most rosiest lights. But it is important for civil society as well. And so it's a constant pull and push and moral and ethical and political dilemmas, you know, security dilemmas. I'm researching European security. So uh, I do understand the security imperatives of European countries, you know, the need to enforce the law and the need to protect your borders. So there is a requirement for maintaining some level of border security to secure the country. But it's very important to also keep an eye on, on law enforcement and any alleged mistreatment of regular migrants. And the other organizations that I, you know, I wonder what their stance is, is the tech platforms. What are the stances of, say, YouTube and Facebook on this type of content? Yeah, it's, um, it's also interesting. One of the things that I was surprised with the most for the Wired piece that we wrote, we were able to get the uh, direct explicit statements from platforms like YouTube. And YouTube was very clear about their policy that they are okay with people sharing information, especially those coming from a war zone. Sometimes the, this information saves lives and they're not going to go and censor information that could save lives. And so they have a, an ethical responsibility of not cracking down on content that actually has potential value of saving lives. However, they have uh, policies in place against sharing illegal information. So it's, uh, you know, it's very important for them to engage on a case-by-case basis. We've seen how Twitter and Facebook have engaged with tweets and content from President Donald Trump. Uh, many of this content has uh, broken 
Facebook and Twitter policies. Yet Twitter, for instance, has assessed that there is a common general public good in allowing for this content to be published despite all the issues that come with those with that content. And so it's always important for these platforms to continuously reevaluate their policies and reassess their policies, but also have a nuanced enforcement because it does allow for the protection of common interests and public interests in general when certain content, despite it somehow breaking its policies, it still provides a general common good. Maybe just to close, I was wondering if you have any insights on where you hope this research might go and you know what you hope its value might be. This is in terms of research, we have stumbled upon a methodologically speaking, something quite interesting and quite unique, which is using content created by the subject themselves to actually understand the the wider phenomenon. And so the work that we need to do and we continue to do is on that specific front, which is on the methodology as rigorous as possible. Also, technically speaking, there are a lot of challenges about collecting that content and using it in a way that allows for some level of analysis. As far as research is concerned, personally, I think that's where the work needs to happen. Great. Well, thank you so much for your time, Amin. It's been so great speaking to you. This is fantastic research, so fascinating and really pertinent. So thank you so much for your time. Thanks for having me. So to discover more about this topic, you can access the following resources available in the show notes on our website. You can read the article that Amin co-authored for Wired titled On YouTube, Vloggers Are Teaching People How to Migrate Illegally. You can also read the article that Armin co-authored for the Institute for Security Studies, Social Media Bridges North Africa's Divide to Facilitate Migration. You can also link to Armin's interview on this issue for the Global Initiatives Africa in the Global Illicit Economy podcast. And discover the videos of one of the most popular North African immigrant influencers, Zizu, through a link to his YouTube, which has 187,000 subscribers and more than a million views on some of the videos. And you can also follow a link to his Instagram, where he has 38,000 followers. And you can discover the work of Migrants as Messengers, an organization that aims to raise awareness to empower young people in West Africa to make informed decisions about migration. You can also link to their Facebook page and read the paper, Migration Narratives and Communication, What Role, Responsibility and Resources Do Governments Have by the Global Forum on Migration and Development. So you can find us online at www.soascodingclub.com. Follow us on Facebook at SOAS Coding Club and on Twitter at SOAS Coding Club. We broadcast every two weeks. So tune in to discover what's to come in your global digital futures.